by day two in the blazing Utah desert, Dave Bouchal was in bad shape. Pale, racked by cramps, a speech slur, the 29-year-old New Jersey man was desperate for water and hallucinating so badly he mistook a tree for a person. After going roughly 10 hours without a drink and the 100-degree heat, he finally dropped dead of thirst, face down in the dirt, less than 100 yards from the goal, a cave filled with a pool of water. But Bouchel was no solitary soul, lost and all alone in the desert. He and 11 other hikers from various walks of life were being led by expert guides on a wilderness survival adventure designed to test their physical and mental toughness. And the guides, it turned out, were carrying emergency water on that torrid summer day. But Bouchal wasn't told that, and he wasn't offered any. The guides did not want him to fail. The $3,175 course that he signed up for. They wanted him to dig down deep, push himself beyond his known limits, and make it to the very end on his own. Well, nearly a year later, which would have been around 2008, documents obtained by the Associated Press under the Freedom of Information Act reveal those and other previously undisclosed details of what turned out to be a death march for Bouchal. They also raise questions about the judgments and priorities of the guides at the Boulder Outdoor Survival School. What matters more, the customer's welfare or his quest? The next statement, if you ever want to look up this article, you can check it out. It's from around 14 years ago or so. I found pretty chilling. Ray Gardner, the Garfield County Sheriff's deputy who hiked six miles to recover Bouchot's body, reported this, quote, It was so needless. What a shame. It didn't have to happen. They had emergency water right there. I would have given him a drink. Friends, what took this young man's life? Well, you could say dehydration and exhaustion did. Some of the physicians in here would nod their heads. Yes. You could also say there were people who were liable, who were culprits. They were the ones to blame for not giving him water. Well, that's certainly true as well. But what's more revealing about this heartbreaking story is the public advertisement that was plastered all over this website for this adventure. I mean, think about it. What would draw a person, what would draw a group of people to risk their lives, to put their lives in grave danger like that? I mean, is losing your life for $3,175 and a boosted ego really worth it in the end? We could assume that this is the very reason why Dave Bouchal signed up to do it in the first place. This is what his heart thirsted for. This is what his heart longed for. At least that's what his actions seem to reveal to us. The article goes on to state what the survival course's 
provocative and enticing advertisement said, quote, somewhere along the many miles of sagebrush flats, red rock canyons, and mesotops of southern Utah, somewhere between the thirst, the hunger, and the sweat, you'll discover the real destination, yourself. As sad and as tragic that story is, a lack of physical water is not the only form of dehydration that exists. You see, as human beings, we are made in the image of God. Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27. That means that we were created by God to display something of what God is like in God's world through our lips, through our lives, as we exercise dominion over the earth under God's rule. We are unique creatures in this way, as God has made us both with a body and soul. We are embodied souls. This is fundamental to a biblical understanding of anthropology. So if you take anthropology in your first year in college, this is not what you're going to be taught. You're going to be taught that we are just physical beings evolved from some goo out of the galaxies that somehow over billions of years came to be complex human beings as we are today. But friends, a biblical understanding of our anthropology is fundamental to how we understand our relationship with the eternal, invisible God of the universe. We find that in the scriptures on how God made the first human being, Adam. We read in Genesis 2, verse 7, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. But because of Adam and Eve's rebellion against God in the garden, Genesis chapter 3, we are all now born into this world separated from that perfect communion with God. And our souls are now corrupted from that sin-sucking poison of our own fallen nature because they listened to the serpent over trusting in their God and because they ate from the one forbidden fruit instead of enjoying the countless number of fruits that God had provided for them. We are all now born spiritually malnourished. We are all born with this devilish sin condition, bent in on serving and loving ourselves rather than bent outward in serving and loving our God. Well, that means that we're left spiritually in a desperate situation. We are destitute and lifeless unless God shows mercy. That's why God, through the prophet Ezekiel, says, the soul who sins shall die, Ezekiel 18.4. And through the prophet Jeremiah, the Lord says that sin entices us. It tricks us to hewn out cisterns, dig out cisterns, broken cisterns. They cannot hold water. You see, from the time we are little children and when we are teenagers 
And when we hit the midlife, 40s and 50s, all the way to our elderly years in retirement, we try to satisfy our hearts with toys, acceptance, pleasure, money, houses, fame, even trying to outdo the next person with whatever tickles our fancy. All while we don't realize that living for these things is like trying to carry around a 10-gallon bucket, a bucket that has a foot-wide hole at the bottom of it that empties out everything we hoped would satisfy us. We pour in what we think will fulfill us, but immediately it's lost. It leaves us empty. It leaves us unfulfilled. And while these gifts from God can certainly be enjoyed in their proper boundary place, they aren't meant to bring ultimate fulfillment to our lives. For example, when a man or a woman looks for that special someone, there's untold amounts of dating websites now and apps and all sorts of things to get men and women to mingle online. And when a man or woman looks for that special someone to complete me. That's just a romantic illusion. That's a mirage that Hollywood has sold to us. And many of us have bought into it. Hook, line, and sinker. If we primarily pursue marriage, one of the gifts that God has given mankind to enjoy, in order to meet my needs and make me happy, it guts the gospel-shaped purpose for why marriage exists in the first place, which is about service and sacrifice to the honor and glory of God. That's why Christopher Ashe has put it well. If we marry mainly to meet our own needs, then our marriages will be just that, good-looking masks for selfishness. But friends, even the most beautiful or handsome spouse or a spouse that you have a lot in common with cannot love you and cannot lead you in the way that only God can. No human being on the planet for that matter. A child, a parent, a boss, a spouse, a friend, a pastor, a church, none of them can complete you. So if you're on that journey this morning thinking that it will, I just want to go ahead and give you the truth so you're not sadly disappointed. You see, the warning against this self-destructive and deceitful view of love, it's really littered all throughout the Bible. As we read of Israel's history in the Old Testament, the bleak story of their idolatry is played on repeat again and again. God's people play the harlot. They commit spiritual adultery against their faithful bridegroom, the Lord their God. But you see, what occurred in their lives centuries ago can easily occur in our lives even here in the 21st century when we put God second, third, maybe even last in our lives. We read in Jeremiah chapter 2, verses 11 to 13, Has a nation changed its gods, even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. 
Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So, brothers and sisters, how significant is it then that we study who God actually is Put the God of Scripture first in our life so that we can worship him as we were made to and expose the idols that have crept in unknowingly. Well, it's the difference between experiencing an empty life and a full one. It's the difference between building your life on the sand and building your life upon the rock. It's the difference between eternal life and eternal damnation. It's the difference between having futile ambitions and vain goals in your life that really have no lasting profit versus a life given to storing up treasures in heaven, chasing after an imperishable crown, an imperishable crown that leads to everlasting joy and reward. It's the difference between living for the here and now versus living for an everlasting kingdom, desiring a better country, a heavenly city whose foundations, whose designer and builder is God. You see, friends, as human beings, we were fashioned by God. We were fashioned for God. And we were made to be in sweet fellowship with God. And yet at the same time, our own experience, whether you've lived 12 years or 60 years or more, is that this fallen world comes with all sorts of sadness and disappointment, all sorts of temporal pleasures and lingering disappointments. It reminds us that living in this fallen world is not our home because a spiritual dehydration has touched us all. A spiritual famine has struck the earth. A spiritual malnourishment has so pervaded our world that cities as big as New York to towns as small as Barling are filled with people, even this morning, who are looking for hope, and joy, and purpose in everything their eyes can see, and yet ignore God in the process. You see, our dilemma is that there is a God from whom we are all made and to whom we will give an account. And the dangerous risk, a much more dangerous risk than Dave Bouchal did in Utah years ago, is the temptation to live our lives day in and day out, Sunday to Saturday, as if God Almighty, the fountain of living waters, doesn't even exist. Friends, when we try to walk around the spiritual desert of this world, trying to dig down deep and find ourselves as the very aim of our life, That's just really another form of a false gospel. It's a man-made message 
and it's not the good news of the New Testament. You might even call it the self-esteem gospel. It's the so-called good news that says, be a better you. Think positive thoughts about yourself. If life throws you lemons, go make you some lemonade. Dream big. Don't let anyone get in your way. Live your best life now. And your sin, well, it's not that big of a deal, especially if it doesn't hurt anybody. I mean, nobody's perfect, right? God will understand. God is love. He overlooks our mistakes. So you be you. Get you some good vibes. Form a bucket list. Enjoy life. Get what you want. Get who you want. And avoid sadness and suffering at all costs. Because suffering, well, that's really the result of God's displeasure of you. Prosperity and success, well, that's, that's because God's favor is shining upon you. So live it up. Live it up in a way that makes you happy and you look good because that's what ultimately matters. You see, the self-esteem gospel is really just a cousin of the so-called health and wealth gospel. God becomes our servant to fulfill our wishes, boost our ego, and we become the center of our own universe. You see, the self-esteem gospel has so overrun the church today that the only thing people want to hear on Sundays are sermons about self-improvement. Be a better you. Three ways to make your marriage more enjoyable. And five steps on how to live your best life now. Listen, the prevailing problem we all face in this life is not that we think too poorly of ourselves. The prevailing problem of our lives is that we think too much about ourselves and we don't think enough about God. How did the Apostle Paul describe our fallen condition? Not Oprah, not Joel Osteen, not many Baptist churches. Romans 1, verses 21 to 23. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise. Man, isn't that the definition of our age? They became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Paul Washer has aptly said that one of the greatest maladies to the modern evangelical church is our failure to expose man's sin and to lift up who God really is in all his glory. He says this, quote, I hear preachers today saying, no, no, you don't understand. We are not like the culture that George Whitfield or Jonathan Edwards addressed. These were men greatly used of God in the 18th century uh, during the revivals of the Great Awakening. We are not as hardy and vigorous as they were. We were broken. We don't have as much self-esteem. We are feeble. We cannot take such preaching. Have you ever studied the lives of these men? Their culture could not bear the preaching of the gospel. Hearers will either turn against it with fierceness or be converted. And to say that we don't have as much self-esteem? Our world is overrun with this disgusting malady of self-esteem. Our greatest problem is that we esteem self 
more than we esteem God. We should all take an honest assessment of our lives today and ask ourselves these questions. Are you and I holding fast to some form of self-esteem gospel? A version of a good news that says my happiness and my glory and my plans, are they really the apex of why I exist? Or is the overarching goal of your life not to find yourself, but to know and enjoy your God. If you have a copy of God's Word, I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Psalm 63. Psalm 63, you can find that on page 274 in the chair Bibles provided. Psalm 63. Psalm 63, a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult. For the mouths of liars will be stopped. This is God's word. If you're taking notes, I have three main points for us to consider. Point one will be longer than the last two, so put on your seatbelt. Number one, God can be known personally. It's verses one and two. Number two, God can be enjoyed deeply. It's verses 3 to 8. And number three, God will be exalted eternally. It's verses 9 to 11. Well, let's first look at the heading of Psalm 63 so we kind of familiarize ourselves. Where on earth are we in redemptive history? As you'll see in the superscription or heading in Psalm 63, uh, you'll notice the setting and the author of the psalm. It says, a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. Now, David is pretty familiar to most of us who've read our Bibles, but if you're not familiar with David, a few things about him. He's a famous king in Israel, being the youngest of eight boys from Jesse, the Bethlehemite. David was anointed the next king to be the royal successor of King Saul. David would reign for 40 years, 
but his prosperous and victorious reign would be checkered with sin and suffering and tragedy and persecution and the tragic deaths of people he loved. You'll notice here in the heading that Psalm 63 was not exactly written when David was hanging out in the DeSoto Hilton or a five-star hotel. It says that he was in the wilderness of Judah. Uh, Commentators divide on when exactly this is in David's life because he was in the wilderness quite a bit. Uh, Some believe this is when David is running and fleeing for his life, when King Saul jealously wanted to get rid of him. You can read more about that in 1 Samuel 18 to 1 Samuel 25. Uh, The other possibility, which I think is more likely, is when David had been reigning as king. And his son Absalom began to revolt against him, trying to usurp his throne. Uh, You can read more about this in 2 Samuel 15 to 17. And really, other than reading those chapters carefully and looking at the pros and cons of which one it could be, you'll notice here in Psalm 63, verse 11, that David describes himself as the king, which seems to indicate that he's already been reigning as king for some time. Either way, David found himself in this dry and weary Judean wilderness. A wilderness that he physically experienced, but a wilderness that always also described what was going on in his soul. Look with me in verse 1. David says, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. David found himself in what we might say between a rock and a hard place. But who did David turn to for help? Where did he flee for refuge, where did David go to satisfy the thirst he was experiencing in his soul? Well, he turned to God. He says, oh, God. Notice he does not say, oh, Israel's mighty men of valor, you know, the SEAL Team 6 that he had at his disposal. He didn't say, oh, Levitical priest. He didn't say, oh, mom, or oh, dad, or maybe in our context, oh, pastor, or oh, president. No, we see right here at the very beginning that God was not his last resort. He wasn't his last phone call on his people to reach out to. He begins this psalm echoing the cry of someone whose heart had been captivated by the mighty creator of the universe. But did you notice how he addresses the mighty creator of the universe? He says, oh God, you are my God. You see, David viewed his relationship with God as intimately personal. In other words, David's relationship with God wasn't a mere head knowledge or some kind of stuffy and distant religious duty. No, his heart for God had been so transformed that David is described in Scripture as a man after God's own heart. 
That means that David didn't just talk about God. David walked with God. Do you have anyone in your life like that? They don't just talk about God. But when you watch their life, they walk with God. Friends, if you have anyone like that in your life, keep them. Keep them close. They could be God's gift to you to teach you how to walk with God in your life. And friends, I've even seen in my own life, one of the ways that God has bore fruit, when I am weary and languishing spiritually, God brings to mind men and women of God I've met in years past. Their testimony from 10 and 20 years ago is still speaking to me today. Even my granddad, who I got to officiate his funeral this past week, though he died, his faith still speaks. David's faith wasn't riding on the coattails of his father Jesse's faith. David's faith wasn't riding on the faith of the people of Israel. David had decided what every person in this room and around the world has got to answer for themselves. Will you put your trust and hope in God? Or will you put it in something or someone else? Will you bank your soul's eternal destination on your feelings, on your opinions, what is popular in the culture? Or will you bank your soul's eternal destination on God's character and trust? You see, David's personal knowledge of God is what sustained him as he walked in the wilderness. It's what upheld him in this season of fighting for survival. It's what kept him pressing forward in this season of physical weariness and spiritual dryness. Parents, here we are in the summer. If you've got children still in the home, especially under 10, you're already praying for school to get back in session. The days are long. You can only go up to the gas station and get a snack and do putt-putt and other things for so long. Sometimes parenting is one of the hardest things to do, especially when you don't see much fruit from your labors, at least in the immediate. Married couples, what keeps you going to stay faithful to your marriage vows when your marriage feels stale and stagnant? It might even feel like it's sinking this morning. My fellow Christian, you might be here today and your life feels like a barren desert. You are spiritually discouraged. You are physically exhausted. You feel pressed on every side, and, and your life right now feels like a rag that has been wrung out, and you feel bone dry. And if you're honest, you're, you're being tempted to throw in the towel. You're sitting there in this chair, and you want to quit. You want to give up on trusting God and dive headfirst into sin and selfishness to the wind with this whole Christianity. Well, if that's you here this morning, I plead with you as one who is tempted in the same struggle as you are. Don't act on those feelings. Beloved, our feelings can be super deceptive. God may feel like he's your enemy because your life feels like a war zone. 
But sometimes we learn about God's intimate friendship when we have no one else to turn to but him. Beloved, trials are God's painful but urgent invitation to know him on a deeper and more personal level. Trials are God's painful but urgent invitation to know him on a deeper and more personal level. Friends, that was Job's experience. Read all 42 chapters of Job. A righteous man who was above reproach, feared God, turned away from evil, and the bottom fell out on his life. And we find out in Job 42, he says, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Friends, some of us don't need another Bible study to go to. Some of us don't need another conference to attend and spend tons of money on. Some of us just need to embrace whatever trial God's give us and pray, Oh God, if by knowing you better, you keep the trial in my life, then keep the trial. Friends, we need to pray more like that. Not God make my life easy, cheesy, and everything goes my way. Friends, if God gave us everything we ever wanted, we would turn our backs on him. By nature, we are haters of God. By nature, we are God ourselves in our own minds. Friends, God does not take pleasure in our pain. God does not take pleasure in evil. But God uses everything in our life to sift to refine, to purify all that which is displeasing to him so that he might bring forth a faith that is more precious than gold. Oh, friends, one of the marks of maturity in the Christian life is instead of praying for God to remove the thorns, remove the storms, remove the trials, is say, God, if you want to keep these thorns in my life, then may your power become more tangible to me than it's ever been before. Friends, that's the testimony of really every true follower of Jesus. Read Christian biographies that are solid. Listen to testimonies of saints who've walked before us. God may strengthen your faith today by learning of saints who've gone before us in the past. Brothers and sisters, don't you see God's painful but urgent invitation in David's experience? David's desperation in this desert-like place did not lead him away from God. It actually drew him closer to God. It led him to earnestly seek his God all the more. Look again at verses 1 and 2. I want you to notice the pronoun you. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. You see, David, though he was in the wilderness, he was not forgetful of who his God was. David's feelings did not redefine for him the character of God in his life. Though his feelings and emotions, though his own body was in agony and tired, his view of God remained high and lifted up. Did you notice what David's focusing on when he's in this weary wilderness? 
He's beholding God's power and God's glory. You see, David had been very acquainted with the Exodus, God's mighty deliverance of the Israelites out of bondage in Egypt. He would have known God's fatherly care when they too wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. He would have known about God feeding them those 40 years with bread from heaven and with water from the rock. He would have been very familiar with the law of Moses and how God revealed himself on Mount Sinai to Moses in a unique and special way. And when Moses got just a glimpse of Yahweh, he said, show me your glory. Show me your glory. You see, friends, the tabernacle that God had instructed Israel to build, it was like a portable worship facility. You know, imagine every Lord's Day, we were in different parts of Fort Smith in this gigantic tent. Here we go again. We're on garrison next week. We're on Chad Collie the next week. This tabernacle is that temporary dwelling place where God would condescend to man's level and reveal his power and glory. So being king of Israel and the skillful musician and psalmist as David was, David was very acquainted with the sanctuary. This was that special place of worship. It's where God's people would see and behold their God, or at least approach the presence of God in the ways that God would allow them to. You see, God's presence left the people in awe because God would display something of his power and his glory. You know, sometimes people think that studying the Bible and going to church is just something you do to keep God happy. You know, last week was a bad week. Wait a minute. It was a bad week because I didn't go to church. Okay, God must be mad at me. Or that lightning bolt got really close to my car. That must have been God. And they live this superstitious Christian life. It's kind of mysticism with new clothes on. It's really strange. It's, I need to go to church to check off the box to keep the boss happy. Or sometimes we can view our relationship with God in a purely transactional way. You know, God, I'll, I'll pray. I'll, I'll throw some money in the box. I'll sing a few songs, and God will return the favor. He'll pay me back, kind of like a roommate would or a friend. But this is exactly why theology matters. This is exactly why teaching sound doctrine is so important in the life of a church. Because a biblical understanding of God will help us understand how God wants to be seeked and worshipped. You see, before anything else that you and I know about discerning God's will in our life, you and I must nail this first fact down. God is always first and foremost committed to showing off his glory. God is always first and foremost committed to showing off his glory. Beloved, he gets glory for himself when his people behold him in awe and wonder, trust him with all their heart, worship him in spirit and truth, look to him, In prayer, when we ask for power, for wisdom, for endurance, 
and for joy, especially when you feel like you're walking in the wilderness. Have you ever had one of those weeks? They were so hard that it was almost like you were being drugged to come to church. You asked yourself the question, will it really matter? Will it change anything? You're so exhausted, you are so weary, nothing's going right in your life, but then you show up and something happens. It's almost as if God had tailor-made the songs, the prayers, and the sermon just for you. I mean, you're standing there exposed thinking, how did the preacher know what was going on in my life? Let me tell you a secret. I don't. But I know who does. Friends, I've sat in church services just like this, sitting there with my wife, realizing, oh my goodness, the Lord has been seeking after me all week, and he's cornered me in this chair I can't get out of. God loves doing that. God loves it when we are spent and weary and humbled, because that's when his presence and his power become so real to us. You see, God's not avoiding us like he's hiding somewhere. You see, the problem when we come into the Lord's gathering place with his people, the problem is not with God. The problem is with us. The problem is not God is boring. God is dull. God can't be enjoyed. No, the problem is that our hearts aren't right with him. That's why we need to constantly be renewed of our minds with the truth of Scripture. And this is also why it's so important that we at Chaffee Crossing Baptist Church push hard against our worship gatherings becoming man-centered rather than God-centered. Brothers and sisters, it is Independence Day. It's July 4th. We live in America. We're in Arkansas. I get it. I got it. But let me just say something that I feel like I have safety to say in a church like this now. If pastors and worship leaders have catered their entire Sunday morning right now in this country to worship a nation, a flag, or the history of this nation more than King Jesus, that's an idol. And God hates it. He despises it. He is not glorified. God bless America. God bless the nations. Friends, be thankful for the nation God placed you in. Be thankful for the country you were born in. But in, in the gospel, our identity, our citizenship, what ultimately matters is that we have more in common with Christians in Nigeria than we do 10 minutes down the road. Friends, we must keep our Lord's Day gatherings God-centered. The things you read and fill your minds with, the music you and I listen to, the things we watch on television, are they making you more man-centered in your ways of understanding the Christian life or God-centered? Friends, we did not start our gathering saying, behold ourselves seated on the red chair in Barling, Arkansas. No, we said, behold our God who is seated on the throne, high and lifted up. And friends, when our hearts are bowed down and our hands are raised up, God is glorified. When our churches are gathered with weak and feeble and broken people realizing their utter need for a Savior, God is glorified. 
And when the gospel is explicitly clear, the good news about Jesus, not us, is on display. God is glorified. Friends, we don't need sermons, Bible studies, conferences to tell us how we need to feel better about ourselves. Friends, we need all we can get to think less about ourselves and more about God. Friends, is that why you came to church this morning? Is that why you joined this church? Is that why you're still here? Maybe you're new here. You just wanted to come check out a new church. A preacher that wears a salmon or a pink or Pepto-Bismol colored shirt. Friends, if you came to church today to focus more on the personality or giftedness of a preacher or to impress someone that might be here, then you came here for the wrong reasons. You see, biblically speaking, we gather together on the Lord's Day as a church to close our mouths and to hear from God, to seek and thirst after God, to behold His power and His glory. You see, friends, the Bible begins with God as the creator of all things, Genesis 1.1, and the Bible ends with God's people beholding God face to face. Revelation 2 verse 4. Friends, in the same way we want our worship gatherings to begin with a focus on God and end with a focus on God. The moment of silence at the beginning before we hear God's word read and the time of silence and reflection at the end after we heard God's word preached. Friends, this is not there so that we look like Puritans in the 21st century. This is there to train our hearts to worship him. Because we come into these gatherings and we will leave these gatherings and it's a war field. It's a battle for your mind. Will I set my mind on things above and on things below? Will I set my mind on me, myself, and I? Or will I set my eyes, my gaze, my joy, my ambitions on God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit? Friends, choose whom this day you will serve. Friends, that's why it's so important that we take whatever we do in these one and a half to two hours, serious with a God-exalting, God-centered attitude. Friends, we need him. If you're weary and tired and you're struggling, you are welcome here because the God we serve is the fountain of living waters. Brother Greg, earlier in the service, what Jesus taught from Matthew chapter 5, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied. Listen, do you want to see God at work in your life more often? Do you want to see God's glory in and through the simplest things like the beauty of a sunrise, the enrichment of a close friend? Then we have to turn our eyes from looking at worthless things and behold God. You might say, well, God's invisible. You can't see him. That's why the Bible tells us to look to Jesus, the God-man. You see, the more you and I open up the scriptures and stare at Jesus, the scriptures say we are transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. We become like him. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, 
are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. In other words, brothers and sisters, when you can see Christ being formed in another person's life, God gets glory for that. When your wife or your husband begins to bear more fruit this week than they did the last 10 years, God gets glory for that. When God's people begin to understand God's word better just a little bit, God gets glory for that. Anytime we see the living, resurrected spirit of Christ bearing fruit in our lives, God gets glory for that. You see, Jesus, he's the image of the invisible God. He's the eternal word who became flesh and dwelt among us. You want to know, for all you Greek students out there, John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. You know what that word means? Tabernacled. He tabernacled. He dwelled. He is the portable human embodied God-man, the tabernacle. So if you wanted to see Yahweh, you want to see God in human flesh, Look to Jesus. He is one who is glorious and full of grace and truth. To my non-Christian friend, you need to know this morning that it's through Jesus, the one we've just spoken about, and how you can know this God and worship him in a way that pleases him. It is through turning from your sins and trusting in Christ that you can know God personally starting today. Are you thirsty this morning? read John chapter 4 this afternoon. Would you identify yourself with the Samaritan woman who's been chasing and seeking for security and peace and love and relationship after relationship after relationship and coming up empty? Friends, come to the water supply. Come to the fountain of living waters. Come to Jesus Christ in repentance and faith and your soul will be replenished abundantly. You see, Jesus resisted the devil in the wilderness as he lived upon every word that proceeded from God's mouth. Jesus offers the living water in himself without price or merit. Jesus died on the cross for the sins of his people, pouring out his life as a living sacrifice for all of us who would turn from our sins and trust in him. And three days later, God raised him from the dead. And Jesus now bids us to come. And drink from a well of mercy and grace day after day until we see him face to face. How did Jesus describe those who would inherit eternal life? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. What does that old hymn say? Joy, you might like this. O soul, are you weary and troubled? No light in the darkness, you see? There's light for a look at the Savior and life more abundant and free. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Well, David knew God personally. 
because God knew him perfectly. And that's why David could look to God in times of distress and when life felt like a desert, because our God can be enjoyed deeply. Look at point number two. God can be enjoyed deeply. As we look at verses 3 to 8, I want you to notice again David's focus, not on himself, not on the wilderness, but on his God. Verse 3, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. According to David, what is better than life? Well, he says there in verse 3, your steadfast love. Uh, Many of you may recognize this is the Hebrew word kesed. Your English Bible could translate it steadfast love, loving kindness, committed love, faithful love, or even his unfailing love. Uh, This speaks of God's special covenantal love, like a marriage would be, where God would set the parameters of the relationship to protect his people from the destruction and deceit of sin. You'll read throughout Israel's history, as I've already mentioned, God was always faithful, but his bride was often faithless. But you see, beloved, even in Israel's history or even David's life, even when God would discipline his people, send them into exile, his steadfast love remained. So here we are. David's in the wilderness. And what does he look to? What does he hold on to? What is he reminding himself when his circumstances seemed so dismal? Well, it was God's steadfast love. See, David had heard the promise that God would establish his throne and his kingdom forever. 2 Samuel chapter 7. And David knew that even though his life would one day end, there would come a descendant who would take that throne. Friends, when we call upon God in prayer and remind ourselves of his faithfulness in our life, the present trials of your life, which right now are massive, or they feel that way, all of a sudden get brought in proper perspective. Friends, God's love for you will outlast the length of every trial you face. God's love for you will outlast the length of every trial you face. Have you ever taken an hourglass? Some of them in the Monopoly boxes are really small. Or if you can find a really big one, maybe at an antique shop, you know, each one is going to have a certain amount of sand in it. You turn a little one over, eh, probably done in 30 to 45 seconds. You turn that really big one over, a true hourglass, well, we're going to be here a while. Friends, trials come into our life just like that. Sometimes they're inconveniences, traffic on Rogers, computer crashes, you forget to pay the bill, you get a bad night of sleep, you have a bad interaction with a neighbor. Those are some of those many, many trials. They're here, they're inconvenient, they're troublesome, but really in about 24 hours or so, they're gone. Sometimes we face some hardships that, well, they seem like they're going to stay a while. But friends, our own life, you already know this. 
none of the suffering and afflictions that you face in this life last forever. One day they will end. In a little while, whatever you're facing today will soon be a long time ago. You might be staring at the windshield of darkness. Before you know it, it'll be in the rearview mirror of your life. But God's love for us in Christ, well, it never runs out. That's why Paul can say in Romans 8, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels or rulers, nor things present or things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, or anything else in all creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Friends, the cross of Christ is God's permanent stamp of his steadfast love on your life. If you're here, or in weeks from now, months from now, years from now, you begin to question God's love, there's really one place that you and I can always go back to to remind us that God does love us as much as he says he does. And that's looking back to the cross. That's looking back to the empty tomb. Tonight, we will gather together again to partake of the Lord's Supper as we remember God's love for us, his promise towards us, that he is coming back for us. You see David here? Did you notice he didn't say a lot of things he could have said? David didn't say that God's love was just better than growing up in Bethlehem, better than having a big family, better than being musically talented, better than being handsome or popular. No, he says better than life. Friends, we too can say the same thing once we realize that your health will fail you, your friends will leave you, your family will at times discourage you, your job will one day be taken from you and given to someone else. Your government won't always serve you. Your church and your pastors won't always meet your expectations. And beloved, the fact of the matter is, you will fail you. But even if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. 2 Timothy 2 verse 13. I love how William Plummer puts it. It is better not to exist than to exist without God's favor. It is better to die enjoying his loving kindness than to live without it. Well, friends, I'm not going to spend a long time here, but I just want to judge three things about what David does as he enjoys God. Uh, first, I want you to notice sub-point one, he sang with praises, or sang praises with joy to God. Verse three, my lips will praise you. Verse four, I will bless you as long as I live. Verse five, my mouth will praise you. Verse seven, I will sing for joy. Uh, music team, those of you who give of yourself every Lord's Day to lead us in worship through song to God, uh, I would encourage you to pray before you gather with the saints each Lord's Day to pray that God's steadfast love would be the motivation in our worship. Because your heart being captivated by God's love will stir up our hearts as we sing his praises. Secondly, notice he meditated with satisfaction in God. Again, in verses 5 to 7, David reminds us again from day and night, God was on the forefront of his mind. You know, Scripture tells us that meditation are one of the ways that we keep God at the front of our life. You know, meditation, it can be misunderstood because of yoga and other things, but meditation is really this, starting and ending each day with thoughts about God. 
starting and ending each day with thoughts about God. Consider buying a good devotional, whether it's Table Talk from Ligonier Ministries or Morning and Evening by Spurgeon. Start a Bible study or prayer group with friends, maybe in times of family worship. Read a verse or two in the morning and sing a hymn or a song in the evening. Uh, Come to church on Sunday morning and Sunday evening. We have it on the first and third Sunday in the evening. Come on back. These are all ways that we can begin to help one another start and end our days with thoughts about God. And friends, I just want to be honest with you. Every church that has ever existed will go through times where it feels flat, where it feels dull, where it feels like we're just going through the motions. I know that because I go through that as a pastor. Sometimes preaching, I feel God's pleasure. And sometimes preaching feels like rocks are coming out of my mouth. I feel like, oh my goodness, if God does not do something, this is just noise. I am wasting myself and looking like a fool. But friends, God brings us into those places when it gets dry so that we cry out for revival again. Donald Whitney offers this word of encouragement to those of us who might be feeling weary today. He says, never give up in the desert. You don't know how wide it is, and you may be almost across. Oh, my encouragement to each one of us, encourage each other with the truth that God is faithful to his people. Even if you're in the desert, God will meet you there. Subpoint number three, notice David followed hard after God. Look at verse eight. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. Again, David is a wonderful example of one who had total devotion. No hypocrisy, no nominal Christianity, but a desperate and dependent trust in God. You see, David desired to love his God and follow his leadership. Whether David was in green pastures or whether he was walking in a dry wilderness. Friends, even when our hands of faith begin to slip, or they feel like that, he will hold us fast. His right hand will uphold us. We conclude with our final point, point number three, God will be exalted eternally. God will be exalted eternally. Look at me, verses 9 to 11. David says, but those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. You see, David had been pursued by his enemies. He knew what it was like to have threats from the ungodly. David knew what it was like to be lied about to have others utter false things about him by those who only meant evil for him and not good. Whether it was King Saul, the Philistines, or his son Absalom, his life was threatened, his character was slandered by those who wanted to thwart God's purposes through David. But David stood firm. Look at verse 11. He says, The king shall rejoice... In God, all who swear by him shall exalt. Friends, where did David get that kind of confidence? He was a fallen man just like you and I. He was tempted to be afraid, tempted to quit, tempted to give up, 
tempted to murmur, tempted to have a big view of man and a small view of God. Friends, David knew the same truth that all of us know on this side of the cross. On the day of judgment, God will bring justice to every injustice. God will judge by his perfect law everyone who has ever lived. And on that day, beloved, the mouths of every unrepentant liar will be stopped. No more. Let God be true and every man a liar. Everything that was hidden in the dark will be brought to the light. God's enemies, which were David's enemies, would indeed go down into the depths of the earth. But you know, David would die too. David would not be a king that would reign forever because God would be faithful to his promise to raise up a king that would descend from David. You see, God's king, God's Messiah, that Psalm 63 is ultimately pointing us to is the one we read about in Philippians 2, verses 10 to 11. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess, no more lies, no more slander, no more mixed motive gossiping speech, but every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See, if you're a Christian and you put Christ first in your life, like David and like every follower of Jesus throughout history, you will face times in the wilderness. You will face opposition from people who oppose you and they oppose the Jesus who lives in you. You may be slandered. You may have all types of evil and unkind things said about you because of your obedience to King Jesus. But according to Jesus, carrying the cross, carrying your cross, carrying my cross is not the path of least resistance. But carrying the cross is the path to abundant life. We know who wins in the end. King Jesus. And we too who are in Christ, the scriptures say we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. One Christian that grew very weary as he was opposed for honoring Christ with his life was George Whitfield. George Whitfield was an evangelist that God mightily used in the 18th century, both in England and the United States. At different crossroads in his ministry, he was publicly slandered and his life threatened as he preached to crowds up to 20,000 people in the fields, and sometimes more. Many came to saving faith through Mr. Whitfield's ministry, but many also wanted him to leave town and even kill him. Like David and his Lord, he too would be persecuted, lied about, and slandered, and would face weary wilderness-like trials. Towards the very end of his life and ministry, there's a story of one of his last preaching opportunities. It's been recorded like this. A platform had been prepared in a field, and as he approached it, an elderly gentleman said, sir, you are more fit to go to bed than to preach. True, sir, replied Whitfield, and turning aside and looking up, he stated, Lord Jesus, 
I am weary in thy work, but not weary of it. If I have not yet finished my course, let me go and speak for thee once more in the fields. Seal thy truth and come home and die. Whitfield preached for about two hours in the field. Many hearers stated that it was the greatest sermon they had ever heard him preach. Following this event, Whitfield went home. While his family was at supper, he said he was tired. Yeah, no joke. And would go to bed. While walking up the stairs, the door was opened, and people were gathered outside the house requesting to hear Mr. Whitfield preach again. Whitfield paused, candle in hand, and preached Christ till the candle burned out in its socket and died away. The candle was a symbolic of his life, which was also burned out and speedily dying away. Richard Smith, a young man who traveled with him, reported that Mr. Whitfield awoke about two in the morning and seemed to pant for breath. Whitfield said, a good pulpit sweat today may give me relief. I shall be better after preaching. Smith told him he wished he would not preach so often. But Whitfield answered, I had rather wear out than rust out. Around 7 in the morning on September 30th, 1770, George Whitfield would take his last breath. His Christian race was finished. His faith was made sight. His thirsty and weary soul was completely satisfied. He served his master. And then he beheld his God. Brothers and sisters, it's okay to be weary in his work, but draw upon his strength day by day so you don't get weary of his work. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would satisfy the soul Replenish the soul. Strengthen the souls of your people. Remind us that your steadfast love truly is better than life. Lord, I pray that we would look back to Psalm 63 as a, a psalm that many of us may have been familiar with. A psalm that comes in very handy when times are hard in our lives. Uh, Lord, I do pray that we would encourage each other and strengthen one another. Lord, I pray that we would even see the examples of David and Whitfield and ultimately Jesus Christ, our Lord. Lord, you will replenish us. You will satisfy us. You will sustain us. Lord, teach us how to depend upon you that we might know you and enjoy you forever. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.